Good morning. I'm your host, Claudia Shamba, welcoming you to the October 16, 2018 edition of Ask a Leader. 21 days till the midterm elections polls are open for early voting in 20 states, California among them. Check your states, your county's administrators for the details. It's a good way to verify your registration. A good idea when so many voters are getting bumped off the rolls due to some very unsettling criteria. Oh, and leadership continues to take place on the municipal level, folks. Yesterday, the city of San Diego voted to ban expanded polystyrene foam, commonly referred to as styrofoam, with additional requirements that plastic straws and to-go utensils are provided upon request. Sometimes we can just bring our own, right folks? They're now the largest city in the state of California to pass this type of ordinance. So speaking of leadership, today we're going to start our local election coverage and that is with Irvine City Council candidates. The first will be small business owner attorney, community service commissioner, Lauren Johnson Norris. In the second segment, Rebecca Newman of the League of Women Voters will breathlessly give us the pros and cons of 11 statewide propositions on the midterm election ballot. In preparation for both appearances, the Voters Edge brochure online is a handy one to have. All remaining Ask a Leader coverage will be exclusively Irvine City candidates, whom you've not heard them before on this show from other election cycles. We'll be right back after a short station break. Welcome back to the show, everybody. Well, now we kind of know what it's like to be a New Hampshire voter, having so many surveys and polls dial up at our homes, many of them about our city council races. And I enjoy taking them to find out what push questions I'm getting this round. We'll talk about one of those push questions, too. Today on Ask a Leader, beginning our coverage of the Irvine City Council, we direct first our questions to Lauren Johnson Norris. This election cycle two seats are open and one mayoral seat is up for um, with the incumbent up for re-election with uh, four other candidates opposing but for the city council seats 12 candidates are running for the two slots a little background about Lauren Johnson Norris she grew up in Southern California and earned her bachelor's degree from Pitzer College in Claremont and then her law degree from Benjamin N. Cardoza School of Law in New York she returned to Orange County and served as a deputy public defender. In 2009, she opened up her own law practice in Irvine with a focus on children, youth, and families. In 2011, she received a fellowship award for her parental advocacy work from Appellate Defenders, Inc., appointed by Council Member Melissa Fox. Lauren Johnson Norris serves as an Irvine Community Service Commissioner. That's the escalator, folks, for future office like council and above. She's been advising the city council where she's taken up transportation, affordable housing, water safety, park space and recreation, child care services, and land conservation. She is co-chair of the Irvine Children Youth and Families Advisory Committee. 
in other organizations. She's served on the board of local YMCA and as president of the South Orange County Bar Association. She's volunteered with the Orange County Bar Association Mentorship Committee and has been a guest speaker at the UCI Law School. She joins me in studio. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Lauren Johnson Norris. Thank you so much, Claudia. This is amazing. Well, I'm glad to have you here because this is probably one of the only chances most, uh, who's ever listening now or the podcast is going to hear straight from the horse's, the pony's mouth. So for many years, Irvine has established, distinguished itself for, and being known for its unique and its visionary institution building. What stands out to you as something worthy of building upon? Well, I think Irvine, I can say personally, has served me so well since I moved here in 2004. I grew up in the San Fernando Valley Um, in the 80s in real suburbia and my first chance to see what a city was like was when I moved to New York and having lived there it was there's no other city like it and seeing the way that a city can evolve in many beautiful amazing ways was terrific but there also are those problems and what I learned when I moved back to Southern California was that California is just growing we're growing and growing and growing and I moved to Irvine in 2004 to work And I've seen it evolve so much over the years. Our population has attracted so many people because it's such a tremendous place to raise a family, to run a business, to engage in recreation. And the quality of life here is unlike anywhere else. We should be so proud of that. Well, I, I wanna, I'm thinking of lots of institutions that were built specific to Irvine, to put Irvine on the map. Uh, we had the uh, chloral, fluorocarbon ordinance that sort of tacked with what a local and be- eventual chemistry Nobel laureate was uh, one here on campus. And so there were visionary things that there's, we look about and we've got all of this, this massive open space system and all that. So I want to know, apart from what you've experienced in other cities though, but what is it about, what institutions here do you want to build on to? Sure. Well, I think being here at UCI is worth mentioning because the folks who live in Irvine tend to be very educated. They are thinking about the future, progressive in the way they think about the environment, science, technology. And when I knock on doors and talk to residents and voters, I am just shocked by the level of awareness of what's going on in our city. Um, Some of that's education. Some of that is just this is a traditionally engaged community. And I think that that will lead us to make the best decisions for the future of the city together as a collective community. And we also have such a wonderful tradition of community advocacy. So groups from the, you know, starting out with the, the people involved in Bomber Canyon many years ago or people who are concerned about the living wage you know, in the ordinance we passed years ago. Individuals who've worked on um, environmental issues in this city, preserving our open spaces. I love the collective voices that speak loudly here, and I think we should build on that because our residents are are bright, they're educated, and they know what they want for this terrific city. Well, you're giving me a segue. Speaking of collective voices that were loud, let's talk about what happened in the primary with reference to the Veterans Cemetery. 63% spoke pretty loudly about their wanting to go to the original design, carefully mapped out, planned, lots of investment of resources and 
brain trusts to develop that cemetery within the Great Park. What do you do with that loud voice that rallied at the primary? Sure. So in, I'll let you know that my husband is a veteran. He's a United States Coast Guard veteran. So this issue is very close to us. And in full disclosure, I, what I learned from veterans like the VFW, American Foreign Legion, all of our elected, both on uh, the Democratic Party side and the Republican Party side, that um, a land swap was proposed that would save this city you know, 30 to $40 million in remediation at that original site. And my husband's voice is a veteran and others. I was in favor of a land swap. And, I, um, and I've said that, and it's no mystery. But I do hear loud and clear that the voters had an opportunity to vote on that. And they said no. And I think I have a good understanding why, having why? talked to hundreds and hundreds of residents. Well, it's a couple things. There's three parts, I think. <clears throat> Certainly, there are people who wanted that original site and the investment and the, you know, the will behind that site. They were committed to that. Second, I think that there's a real distrust of developers in this city, and rightfully so in many, we many reasons why. I mean, I can tell you because they've spent now over $150,000 attacking me in this race, but there are many reasons to distrust what they We've were putting out. We've got lots of days out there. Developers. So the, 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 yeah. Okay, yeah. The big they, developers the voices, in our city. The, but the, sure. the guide writing checks. Right. So what I, um, I think that that was a big suspicion for many residents and, and well-founded. In addition, the threat of possible more traffic um, anywhere in this city um, really dissuaded voters from supporting the land swap. So I hear them loud and clear. I would love to see a veteran cemetery here in Irvine. It's important to me and my family. I know the council is now considering looking again at the artist site and also a potential site that was idealized for a golf course that is in the Great Park and that is at the base and maybe a solution to um, the, the cost. It doesn't need remediation, but I know it's all being evaluated again. Well... It, it's a, worthy, a topic worthy of the entire interview time that we have. I have innumerable follow-up questions. Um, I'm giving you an opportunity to present your position, and I'm not going to be able to debate points that I'll, I will take exception to in terms of what pulling the curtain back really is involved with who's benefiting from this swap and what was um, and a bit of the co-opting of some of the military. So uh, there's there's quite a bit of nuance in all of this, and there's a lot of money to follow in this. And so I'm I'm going to set aside the question, urging people to continue to look critically at where the money is, where it's been, because it speaks a great deal to um, the various performances on the council. So last week. I talked with an immigration attorney about Senate Bill 54, an item that Mayor Wagner has twice placed on the city council agenda. Melissa Fox, the council member who's appointed you to the Irvine Community Service Commission, she's weighed in with concerns about Mayor Wagner's measure. How would you, Lauren Johnson Norris, handle this? Were you on the council? I agree with Melissa Fox. I don't think there was any reason other than playing politics for the mayor to put this on the agenda or attempt to. We have a diverse community. There are folks who are undocumented undeniably in this community. In addition, our police do not currently enforce immigration law. And I've spoken with officers from Irvine PD who say they've never enforced immigration law and they never will. 
And so the reality is this is a non-issue for our city, but it's an incredibly divisive issue for our city. And I've seen throughout this county it bring out some of the worst people who don't even live in our community, um, bringing in racism and other things that just have no place in Irvine. I agree with Melissa Fox. This shouldn't even be on the agenda. There's no reason for it, and I wouldn't um, at all support that. So what would you do in interacting with the council? Sort of how, how would you interact with them about their uh, taking their their either their political motivations or having them own what's so darn great about the city. Well, I think we call it what it is. I mean, first of all, I would um, certainly say that there's no need for this and would have advocated that position if I'd been on the council and voted no to even have this conversation. I wouldn't certainly wouldn't second it and would discourage anyone else from seconding it to put it even on the agenda to make that motion and move it forward. So do you have a do you have a head count of how the council would vote if this measure of Don Wagner's were to be on um, up for a vote? I don't know, but I can say that at the last council meeting, two council members didn't show up, and Christina Shea let was leaving early. So I'm hearing that they don't want to engage with this. Whether they would vote to support it if they had to because of party reasons, I don't know. Okay, but it's Hope. telling. It's telling yeah. that they left. So so. All the telephone survey push questions that I've been getting, they're all about traffic. In fact, I just say, I'm not, I don't answer those questions because that's my, not my push question. So is there anything like smart development on the candidates' minds? We've, we've had the climate action campaign present you know, the feasibility study funding. So what, what are your push questions? Well, I think that, you know. Here's your survey. Sure. Traffic is a huge issue in our city. And I've lived in places with far worse congestion and traffic due to rapid growth, um, you know, decades of it, right? But it, the reality is Irvine has grown so much over the last 15 years that people are experiencing the effects of overdevelopment. And the way that we've grown hasn't been like transit-oriented development. It's been in a suburban sprawl. And while that is a nice, might be a nice place to live as an individual, it's hard to get out of your community or get around your community if everyone is living in a suburban sprawl and there are so many people in the city now. So some of the solutions, I'm the only candidate that's offered a, tra a traffic and transportation plan to deal with overdevelopment, and it's on my website, laurenforirvine.com. You can find it there because I think it's time on day one to address this issue. And my plan deals with not just the residents who are living in the city, getting them around um, in part through active transportation and connectivity, but also through public transportation, which we just have a, a, you know, a complete absence of, but also for the workforce. But isn't review of a development order of any subdivision, any redevelopment, isn't that where transportation happens by the kind of quid pro quo of how, how smart to build out that particular development. I mean, it's the roads are, it's too late, baby. We've got to work on what is so darn smart, dense, uh, clustered around uh, other commercial areas, work areas, and that kind of thing that, that, that where we're putting everybody. Absolutely, yes. I agree with you. Anytime that anything new is going to be developed, it has to be part of the conversation. And in this city, unfortunately, transportation really hasn't. It just hasn't been made part of it. Even when I review a park on Community Services Commission, I'm asking, where's the bus stop? Where are the bike racks? Um, and those are all critical questions to ask, but it hasn't been highlighted through the planning process for the last 10, 15 years. But I disagree with you. I do think that there are solutions we can put in place now for the residential communities that exist. Our roads are huge. They have four or five lanes, some of them, and the reality is we are really equipped either for 
um, public shuttles, buses, um, you know, they're called back in the day, or um, something else that's running through the city to get more people on these big roads. And so the reality is we can do it, but we really need to invest in a commitment to moving people through public transportation to make that happen. Well, what we can make bicycle riding incentives available so people Absolutely. feel A, safe, and B, they get the benefits from that. But I'm, I'm, I'm always bringing on that that mode, which I don't know in the comprehensive plan how much. I know Bill talked about that uh, a couple of times on the general plan update. You know, But accommodating alternative modes and in accommodating, making, assuring safety and sort of offering, reinforcing a culture of using other things, not just putting people on the buses, because there's a huge barrier to getting people on those buses. It's always the first it's and the last get mile. Them on a bike. Yeah, right. Yeah. I agree with you. It's the first and last mile. And so that means, do we just even have enough bike racks on the buses is also an important question. Enough bike racks and outside bike racks, the period. student union at UCI. I'm <sighs> such a scold about that. I'm with you. I okay. agree with you. And protective right turn lanes and other things we can do. Yeah, exactly. Oh, well, that's right. Well, the oh, for those of you who've just joined us, my guest is Lauren Johnson Norris, local attorney and appointed member of Irvine's Community Service Commission. She's running for one of the two seats open now on the Irvine City Council for this midterm election, November 6th. Remember, everybody, November 6th. And we're, uh, we're going right through all of the tough questions about what makes a city worth living in. We'll just put it that way. So the hot housing market, Irvine, it's squeezing middle-income houses. I mean, like a broad swath of demographic of middle-income houses. It's like a vice there squeezing. What measures, Lauren Johnson-Norris, have you in mind to address this? Sure. So I think we do a really good job in the city of inclusionary zoning. It works here in Irvine. That's where 15% of anything that's built is affordable housing. That could be even half of a rental rate. But I also think we can do a better job bringing in housing um, and including in that or in addition to that for first responders, police, fire, and even teachers in this community because it's the middle class folks who've been really squeezed out. I mean, the rents are so high. I'm hearing apartments that are one bedroom and they're over $2,000 a month. Um, this is just not sustainable for new graduates, for seniors, and for families in the city. And so I think we can kind of build off of the idea of inclusionary zoning and how that's worked so well. And what I love about it is that you can't tell what's affordable in this city. So that the buildings that are beautiful continue to remain beautiful. The community is integrated and different uh, in class in terms of kids. They don't feel any kind of stigma for being in affordable housing. And I think that's really a good way to absorb a different population in our city, different populations. I always like to call out the most, the biggest affordable housing secret is right up the hill from where we are now doing this interview. That is an unbelievably, it's a successful project that the University of California Board of Regents have been able to develop, but that I don't think anything can touch the kind of affordability of that anywhere else in the city. And I don't know if there's any uh, sort of restricted equity housing that stock plans that you have in mind? I don't know about it. I know about the UCI uh, faculty housing, and it's great. It allows professors to work and live here and be part of the community, but I don't know um, whether that's something that we can do in the city. I'm open to any solutions that can make home ownership 
a priority here for all different income levels. Um, that's why I, I've been endorsed by the realtors because home ownership is a way to build equity. We know that that's how people um, can put in for retirement and can live, you know, and feel connected to their community. And I support a variety of different ideas, but I'm still learning all of them because there's so many in different places that we just haven't even tapped into in Irvine. Right. So the quality of life on your website is a, is a big deal. And I uh, actually had a chance to listen yesterday on another radio platform, and Eric Klinenberg, who has written about social infrastructure. And he talked about it in terms of quality of life, and he talked about it in terms of security. And security is a part of your platform as well. And the book he wrote, and I want people to take a look at it. I'm going to have to get my own copy. The book is called Palaces for the People, and are you familiar with the book? No, but I love that title. So the, the idea is that when you build things like public libraries, and the public libraries are thriving, that it's a place where people can go. There's community there. There's benefits in terms of the you know services immediately rendered there. And so that also becomes a structure for a refuge from a civil emergency. So there, there's like all of these services that the social infrastructure performs. So Irvine, we're not a gritty old city like what he was talking about, where some of these social infrastructure are like the, the last bastion of security for many households. But for here, what might you envision would commit to in interjecting a social infrastructure conversation amongst the council members. Sure, so we have this incredible great park that has yet to be constructed from a cultural terrace perspective. And I would love to see a world-class institutions there. When we talk about public spaces and where people get their sense of community, we think about things like libraries, museums, places where folks, not just commercial centers, but places where folks can learn and reflect on what it means to be a part of this community. I would love to see a world-class library, a place where young people can go and explore ideas, create, use printers that they maybe couldn't have in their home. It's not something that would be, you'd have a family printer, but 3D printers um, that they can create and make you know, the ideas of the future. And I think that that's also a place where families can uh, meet one another, kids can interact with each other. Museums are another way to do that. That's been in uh, institutions in this country since um, the Industrial Revolution where people come reflect on history and learn. And I think that we can do a great job at the Great Park in building a cultural terrace, an amphitheater, other spaces that are shared public spaces that we all can enjoy. With due respect, the redefining of the Great Park away from the cultural amenities that were budding, blossoming back in the day prior to the development order issued for the housing and the control of the park given over in November and December of 2013, there was a massive pivot away from cultural amenities to park facilities to be rented for mega, mega sports events. So I don't know if we can find around the, in that little canyon of culture around which the major athletic enterprises have been built. So how do you get that little billboard up and 
hoisted for people to realize there are these things. And uh, I mean, I'm not even sure what the status of the the Master Gardeners projects are at this point. So they they seem to be overshadowed by a, a different kind of a hard structure built out in the Great Park. So um, how how do you get your billboard hoisted up there to say culture culture here? I think we're getting there. This is a big project. It's going to take a long time to build out this park. I believe and understand that the reason we have sports facilities is to bring in revenue so that we can, you know, support them because our, for example, our soccer stadium is now a city community park. You can rent that space. You can use that space. And young kids who are, are, are using these spaces every day, if you go out on the weekend, and I go to the OC Soccer Club games, we're going to have, you know, there's October 20th is our playoff game here. So the community already is using this space. I do support our athletics, but I also think that we're getting there. And I think we continue the conversation and residents should put pressure on the council and say, well, this is the arts and amenities that we want to be able to enjoy. And I think we'll get there. So what does it cost? To, how much uh, do I check that I write out for getting one of those? Um, let's say one of the soccer fields and then one, one of the baseball diamonds. Oh, I don't know that. I'd have to look at the, but it's, at the catalog. But I can't go in there and use it like I can the, the, the rest of the park system in Irvine. You absolutely can go kick a soccer ball on the fields right now. If but you want to, but to use life. it to bring my organized sport arrangement enterprise oh, there. Oh, absolutely. There's teams. I don't have to write a check out for that. No. Well, you have to. You have to go through the process to apply to be able to do tournaments and other things through the city. And there is a cost. But as a community services commissioner, yes. you know we approve That's the you. cost. Right. I know. So I know what they are. I don't remember what a field cost to rent. Um, but it's we price it in a way that residents can afford it. We're not trying to make uh, a tremendous amount of money off sports and recreation. We want our residents to be active and out and playing. And our youth sports are you know really nominal because we're really focusing on kids getting them active as you get older in the age groups then it goes up in price but um, the reality is that they are affordable and we've looked at them in our budget to approve them to make sure that it's comparable with other cities okay any other way you're going to um, bring to the council the cultural amenities features the benefits of that and return to what I mean, there. I don't know if you ever took in any of those summer concerts that were out there. They nabbed the performing arts that were coming from L.A. down to San Diego. They were stopping over the Barclay. They had them play for free at the Great Park. So, what is it that you would try to leverage with the council to get that cultural piece back? Up, put Irvine on the map there. Sure. Well, I think we work with we work with our you know um, not only some of the developers that are in that area who I know already have committed to continuing to build out the arts in that area, but we're going to have to raise money. That's going to be another piece of it um, for the city to be able to accomplish this. But I really think that it's the collective will of the residents. And that's why I really encourage residents to come out at council meetings and say, where's the botanical gardens? Where are and these? They are. They and are, they are. They've been pretty organized, but I don't know. And what's the status of those? Yeah, I think they're still an exploratory stage. But again, you know, a great park takes a long time to build out. But it's a matter of one, one was there and one's being rem and it's been removed, The like the, the testing gardens and all that. I don't know if that's been restored. I'm not up to date on that. I'm not sure what you're referring but the, to. The master gardeners who've been going to the city council to make the case for keeping those those testing gardens there for people to see. What happens in dirt? Yeah, so there is some stuff there now. There's some food labs. There's safe? other things. In terms of what? Is, is it going to remain there? Yeah, I, it, I haven't heard any threat to any of the, the food labs or any of the gardens there. They're all, okay. I haven't all heard right. that. 
Well, we're drawing down this interview. I'd like to know over the last these last three weeks in campaign season, what are some upcoming events where people can meet you and talk with you? Great. I'm so glad you asked. So we have an event at Taps Brewery in Irvine on Thursday night. It's still a fundraiser. We're still in that stage. And um, you can find all of these events, by the way, on my website, laurenforirvine.com. We will be at 85 Degrees at Diamond Jamboree um, this upcoming Saturday. And um, we will also, you know, we are out in the community. I've got about 20 volunteers who are walking and knocking on doors to meet residents. So if you don't see us walking around your neighborhood, come out to one of the coffees. You can find them in the events tab on the website. We'll be still having them for the next three weeks. And I've got a ballot party tonight at my house. So, um, you know, you can go on the website, submit an inquiry through there, and I'll send you my address. We're going to have pizza and come uh, work on your ballot. Okay. Well, I want to thank you, Lauren Johnson Norris, for coming all the way down to the studio to join us. Uh, talking about your campaign. My guest was Lauren Johnson Norris running for the Irvine City Council with two spots open and 12 candidates running. We'll be right back after this short break and we'll bring on Rebecca Newman, president of the League of Women Voters of Orange County. She'll share some useful insights about as many measures as we can fit in. Stay tuned. Welcome back to the show. My guest is Rebecca Newman, president of the League of Women Voters of Orange Coast, where she served in several other offices. She's going to offer us the pros and cons of each of the 11 propositions. She's been an advocate all her life dating back at least to reading Lois Lenski's Strawberry Girl and supporting the Methodist Migrant Ministry while still in elementary school. She's taught preschoolers through doctoral students as well as parents, paraprofessionals. So she's bilingual in Spanish, and most of her career was spent working in the Hispanic community. And there she is breathlessly. We're gonna, That's how breathlessly we're going to be doing the the. the actual measures here on the ballot. The, the last 10 years of her career, Rebecca Newman was devoted to after-school education, including work as a consultant with the California Department of Education and as chief program officer for a nonprofit providing after-school programs in low-income communities. Becky's taken her activism out of state with generous allotments of time to campaign for federal candidates even in one recent case, an entire month. She completed her Bachelor's of Arts at UCI and both her Master's in Education and a Doctor in Education at UCLA. Her doctoral dissertation concerned the educational challenges of homeless students and their families. She joins me in studio. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Rebecca Newman. It's wonderful to be here with you, Claudia, and I don't think I've rushed as much since uh, I delivered my second nine-and-a-half-pound child. Oh, my and goodness. And nearly didn't get to the hospital. Oh, well, you but you did make it to the station. So I every, did. No yeah. babies or no mics have been dropped. Ha. This yeah. is a good thing. Okay. So, Becky, would you first quickly speak to how the League of Women Voters processes their positions on these propositions. And then we'll, we had a chance to talk last week with Susan Guilford about 
the actual positions, but you're going to do pros and cons. It's going to be a, a different kind of a flavor, which the league is obligated to keep separate positions and pros and cons discussions. So, but a little bit about the process. Absolutely. The league uh, starts looking at propositions as quickly as they come uh, into the public eye and relating them to any um, information that we already have because we are constantly studying legislation and analyzing it in view of our own priorities and areas of expertise. And so as soon as propositions are qualified for the ballot, we are already almost ready to give um, an analysis of what they are about. We do not attempt to shade our analysis. Uh, to reflect either an advantage or a disadvantage to a particular party or to a particular uh, politician, nor to reflect our own opinions. So in the case of the propositions on the ballot this year, there are several on which we have taken a position, but hopefully you will not be able to tell that from what I have to say about what the oh. proposition is and what it does. And in uh, before we go into the pros and the cons, briefly just tell us about the League's really comprehensive voters' edge. That is the greatest tool you'll ever it's find such a good one. for making decisions about your ballot. Voters Edge is very easy to access. If you Google Voters Edge, you'll be there, but you can also do votersedge.org slash CA for California because it's active in other states. It's a partnership between ourselves and MapLite, which is um, an organization which tracks money in political spending. So you put in your address and your zip code, and boom, up you will find all of the races that are on your ballot and also information about all of the propositions. We invite candidates to participate for free on Voter's Edge, which is a huge advantage to down-ballot candidates, especially who huge. may not have much money. Right. Uh, and they are invited simply to agree that they will talk only about themselves, not their opponents or any parties, give us their profession and their three highest priorities. After that, they can upload their political philosophy, their biography, links to their website, lists of their endorsers, their... Um, approaches to everything that they're going to be working on, just about anything that they would like to put there. And it lets you, the voter, compare those candidates apples to apples to apples. If you see what the political philosophy of one candidate is, you can check the political philosophy of all of the other candidates. If you see their highest three highest priorities, look at the priorities of the other candidates. If you make a decision, you can mark your decisions. And when you're done using Voter's Edge uh, completely, you can also get a printout to take with you to the polls. All of the propositions are explained in some detail on Voter's Edge. So in addition to listening to presentations like this one, you can read the information. You can link to the proposition itself and read the whole darn text and make your decisions. Well, what also I like about it, I think you didn't mention, mm -hmm. too, is that it gives us a chance to see where some of the finances are, the ones that are Yes, that's the MapLite part. That's very helpful. So, okay, let's begin... Proposition 1, the first of several bonds. Yes. The, the Proposition 1 is about affordable housing bonds, and it is a very straightforward general proposition for bonds. In thinking about propositions, you want to be sure you think about what it's like now, what the measure proposes to do if it passes, what its effect will be on the state budget, if any, according to the Ledge Analyst's Office, and what the supporters and the opponents say. It's important to remember that what you read about the arguments in your ballot were paid for arguments by the sponsors and opponents. The only thing that comes straight from the state is the budget analysis from the Ledge Analyst. So we'll start out with the way it is now. The situation right now is that, as we all know, housing is extremely expensive, and especially people with low and moderate income are really struggling not to buy, just even to rent. Yep. 
This proposition would help provide housing to low-income and, and also to a certain extent homeless residents and to veterans. What it would do if it passes is allow the state to sell $4 billion in new bonds to pay for existing affordable housing programs and to increase the amounts available for low-income residents, veterans, housing near public transportation, and also farm worker housing, both year-round and temporary. As far as the effect on the budget, it will cost us about $170 million a year for the next 35 years, but that's about what you do when you buy a house. You pay for it over time. It's good to remember that a general rule for bonds is that our indebtedness should not be over 5% of the state budget. Right now, California is at about 4.5%, so we still have some space for bonds, but we need to be increasingly careful about that. Supporters say we need housing and that we can't even attract people to work here if they can't afford to buy a place. And that, of course, we'll honor veterans by helping them buy a home when they return from service. Opponents argue that it doesn't do that much for that many people. And that if we keep borrowing money, we will all end up paying higher taxes. So I, I want to quickly interject. I had a chance to look at Cal Matters. Mm -hmm. It's a, a news platform. Yes. And so they had their staff go through each of the propositions. Mm -hmm. The missing piece from their analysis was, because and they were under the gun, they had to do every prop in 60 seconds, and so, <laughs> uh, which they, they managed, but, yes. but the fiscal impacts were kind of, were missing in that, and so uh, some the fiscal impacts sometimes are addressed in the voters' pamphlet, but there's the, you know, the impact of bond money, interest money being paid out, offset by what's actually being done, what yes. is earned, by that household being resilient and and thriving, what kind of taxes are paid as a result of that person having the housing and being able to Absolutely. sustain? So, so it's a that fiscal impact is a very unwieldy and a missing piece in all these. Let's go on to Prop Two. I know you have more to say, but we've got That's we don't okay. have much time. Prop Two is pretty easy, actually. It is about using Prop Sixty Five money to help do housing first as a way of helping people with severe mental illnesses and drug abuse. We've learned over time that all the treatment in the world is not helpful if a person is living on the streets. It's hard for them to get health care. It's hard for them to eat properly, let alone take care of themselves and recover. So the proposal is to take money that is already there in Prop 65 and use it for housing first, followed by services. It, there is no actual cost to the state because the money is already there in Prop 65. The question is, how should it be spent? And right. this argues housing first. So what uh, shift share goes from out of one funding into the other. Proposition yes. 3. Proposition 3 is another water bond. It seems like we have them increasingly. In this particular bond, what we're looking at is... Um, Spending some money on watershed production, drinking water, dam and reservoir repair, flood protection, flood fish and wildlife improvements. A veritable Christmas tree. A veritable Christmas tree, and a number of people have made that observation. It will cost the state about $430 million each year for the next 40 years. Uh, would probably see some savings in local governments in terms of what they would be spending on the same kinds of things. The f supporters say that it's for clean water and that we have to prepare now for droughts and floods. Opponents say that actually it doesn't really address water shortages very much, that a great deal of money is spent on things that are not directly related to increasing the water supply, and that it makes a change in the way we think about financing water in the sense that it will shift from the end users to the California taxpayer 
in order uh, to fund these proposals. Finally, uh, people are, uh, have argued that there is inadequate oversight. The money is it's not well defined in the proposition as to exactly who will decide what are the legitimate uses and how they should be spent. And in general, that it's a bad idea to have a proposition that doesn't have an enforcement mechanism. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So Proposition 4. Proposition 4 is um, another interesting uh, issue. It would have uh, money going to children's hospitals, primarily to eight pri private children's hospitals in the state and five UC, UC system hospitals and then a small number of other general hospitals who care for severely ill children. In most cases, those children are eligible for Medicare or Medicaid, but there is also private insurers paying for some of it and money would go uh, primarily to the eight children's hospitals with a smaller proportion, about 15% going to the UC hospitals and the remaining uh, going to the other kinds of children's hospitals. Without this bond, who would be paying for this? Private insurers in some cases, and in other cases, Medicare and Medi-Cal, we don't really control how those payments are made. Those are set by the federal government. Okay. For this but capital. opponents point out that it will um, require the state to, pay, to borrow money and pay it back over many years, like any bond, but also that private organizations should not benefit from public funds, that there are other ways, for example, capital campaigns that hospitals could increase their own capital, provide for the repairs and maintenance and building that they desire, and that in general, we ought to be focused on a more comprehensive healthcare solution for all of us rather than a piecemeal jigsaw puzzle of tossing in a piece here and there. An interesting theme after, uh, on the back of uh, talking about Proposition uh, 3. For those of you who've just tuned in, my guest is Rebecca Newman. I'm calling her Becky. She is president of the League of Women Voters of Orange Coast, racing, as I, as, as I say, uh, about through the pros and cons of 11 California propositions for the midterm election ballot on this November 6th. So Proposition 5 is now, let's and remind us when we get to those, that which ones are the constitutional amendments that have a huge burden of any kind of reversing. So let's talk about... Um, that uh, Proposition 5. Okay, so Proposition 5 looks actually to expand the homeowner's exemption that people over 55 and people with disabilities already enjoy under Proposition 13. This is a um, an initiative constitutional amendment, so it That's gets baked big. in, it gets baked into the Constitution, and in general, Spending money and budgeting by proposition is not the soundest idea, um, in the opinion of many public um, benefit groups. So this one would actually allow that thing that we're all familiar with, where el people of 55 and over can sell a home and carry that one assessed time. valuation one time. Right into a new home. Generally, it has to be within their same county, although there are currently eight counties that will allow you to move from one county into their county and still carry that with you. However, this would allow multiple times, it would allow you to buy a more expensive house and then have a, a negative impact still on your own property taxes. So it's kind of a big gift to the people who already are ben are advantaged under Prop 13. You don't even have to qualify, kind mm -hmm. of. It's a huge <laughs> gift. Well, and then the, and the concern is local governments are, could lose out big. Oh, absolutely. This. Property taxes are paying a huge part of what funds your local services. So that's that's a major concern, and the lay analyst has recognized that. In fact, they're looking at um, 
probably losses as much as um, a, a one billion a billion dollars a billion dollars a year and um, increased state spending to make up for losses to other funds for schools, for example, which were also set by Ratcheting the requirements downward of a what's po- available yeah. and yes. it, where household mm-hmm. incomes it's not a means tested kind of a provision it would allow any expensive home to yes. uh, carry that uh, that lower evaluation of property. Proposition six, the gas tax repeal. This is the gas tax repeal, and it again is an initiative constitutional amendment, and one of the most interesting and perhaps worrisome features of this is that it would require that in future, all other transportation bills must be taken before, financing bills must go before the voters. Uh, We currently have- um, Another baking process. Yes. We currently have still um, a huge number of unrepaired roads. We have a large number of unsafe bridges. We have extreme traffic congestion. And if we look to close off this sort of avenue for making those repairs and being sure that our highways are safe and our buildings and bridges are safe, then we are going to have a real issue. So, and Prop 6 has an important, it has a, a political aspect to it as a way all of remember rallying the recall. voters uh, to, to come out to, for the trigger, uh, the knee-jerk response here saying no Therefore, tax. not surprisingly, many electeds and candidates are supporting Prop 6. <laughs> Takes so, real bravery to oppose it. So Proposition 7 is, uh, let's talk about how that... Um, This is a 30-second proposition, really, because it is an advisory measure. The only person that can, the only entity that has the right to determine whether or not a state can decide to be on daylight savings time year-round is the federal government. It's a long process. It is a process. So this would just be advising, the agreeing that we want the legislature to ask about this. There will be no changes for a long time, and it is a, a completely unclear as to whether or not the federal government has any interest in allowing states to do this. That's enough said for there. Proposition 8 is a uh, this dialysis measure which is uh, pulling on the cords of many people and it's it's a union kind of a leveraging device and I'm I'm saying this not you Mm -hmm. saying that to get in on some of those earnings that the dialysis centers are getting. So what's the pros and cons for this besides what I (laughs) threw out? Well, uh, those are kind of the pro and con arguments, I think. Uh, This is a a measure that would restrict the amount of money, basically, that the dialysis centers can make. Most dialysis centers in California are operated by two different programs. Just two. And they uh, feel that if they are, uh, the the proposition would require them to rebate uh, money if they spend more than 15% on um, certain kinds of overhead. And it is, in fact, sponsored by healthcare workers who claim that they are poorly paid and that the clinics are not well maintained. It is, of course, opposed by the main dialysis organizations. So you can just look and see who is paying for- On voter's edge. Yes. Gets your yes. paragraphs in. Yes. So Proposition 9 was tossed. It was- um, Uh, unconstitutionally uh, ruled, Proposition 10. Proposition 10 gets us back to um, another another issue of housing. This is a rent control proposition, but it's very important to remember that what it does is allow cities and counties to decide whether or not they would like to have rent control. It does not require 
any city or county to enact a written control ordinance. This dates back to a period when we had a piece of legislation that very much limited the possibility of doing rent control by requiring that the rent control could only, um, it was not allowed for single family homes. It prevented local governments from telling landlords what they could charge when a renter first moves in. And the courts have said that landlords have to have, be allowed to increase rents enough to make money. What Proposition 10 would do is allow cities and counties to have the power to decide how much rent can, increases can happen each year. It would have to be done by local ordinance. It could apply for apply to any type of housing, rather not regardless of age or whether single family or rented. It could make it harder for landlords to increase rents when a new mem member moves in. But we have seen that already a number of cities and counties have attempted to enact rent control measures within the limits of the current law and actually mostly been unsuccessful. So the results of this are really hard to determine because it will very much depend on whether or not local entities decide that this is something they want and to do. And that's to the point of the fiscal impacts I was talking yes. about. If you shelter people, does your treasury then, uh, the, the investment in the sheltering people, does that result in a higher uh, That is one scenario. So that's uh, always people think think deeply about these things. And then Proposition 11. We're, I think we just about made it. Yes. And <laughs> this one sounds complicated when you read about it, but actually it's very simple. Here's the deal. First of all, this has only to do with private ambulance companies. If your ambulance service is provided by the paramedics, this does not affect you. The situation now is that ambulance companies traditionally have not paid for their workers to be on break, but they have required them to be present in case of an emergency. Recently, a case for similarly situated uh, employees, yeah. security guards, went through the courts, and the courts have found that it is not fair to require people to work during their break and not pay for that, and so that they are entitled to either get paid during their break or get paid back with a break later uh, and to training that they need uh, if they are going to be required to be on the job all of the time. It is highly likely that this same rule will apply to ambulance personnel. And in fact, there are cases in the courts right now. For the ambulance companies, they will then either be forced to pay the salaries and uh, to, during the breaks, or they would have to buy a lot more ambulances in order to have a sort of a floating ambulance crew going around and basically covering breaks, which everyone can see is hardly an economical idea. No. So actually, this chasing is ambulance, a, major, ambulances. <laughs> a major supporter of this is, in fact, one of the biggest ambulance companies in the, in the country because they've seen the handwriting on the wall, that they're likely to be compelled by the courts if they don't take this move Okay. right now. Well, so you've just told us how important it is to vote. You've made the case about that and the case for voting down ticket, which is where the propositions lurk. So yes. Becky Newman, I thank you so much for being on today's show. Thanks for the chance. Don't forget to look at Voters Edge and get the full picture on all of these propositions. My guest was Becky Newman, and she is the president of the League of Women Voters of the Orange Coast, talking about the propositions. We're going to now wrap up the show. A covered California is open now, and the guy who wants to drain the swamp has thrown a whole lot of red tape into enrolling into this insurance program. Nice. Register to vote, everybody. Pledge to vote. Check your registration. Find the polls. 
get your right ID. That's if it's necessary. Make a plan for election day. I'm going to say this every single cycle. Vote centers, to, vote centers. And November sixth, or get an absentee ballot. Repeat the steps with ten of your friends. So next week, I'm going to have on Irvine City Council candidates Lee Sun and Jackie Woods. Talk with you next week. Thank you for listening, everyone. Mm-hmm.